So we're coming off of a series that really just talked about this whole notion that church is God's bright idea, right? And so to, to get a handle on how we are to live church, do church, be church, we ought to look to and come in line with what he says about church. One of the messages from that was this whole notion of growing up, that growing up is God's idea. In Ephesians, he says that speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Because it's important to God, it's important to Christians that we grow. So it's on God's heart and mind. It's a priority for God. Therefore, as a Christian, it's a a priority for us that we grow. This little letter that we're in right now, 1 Thessalonians, is, is really concerned with the growth of Christians. Being written to this young church and and Paul and his team are writing to these people to make sure that they grow up together in God. So the question we're concerning ourselves with this morning is this. How do I do that? How do I grow up in God? Now that's a topic that if you walk the uh, bookstore, if you shop Amazon, if you look at different things, you'll see tons of titles, right, of, of how to, to grow in God, how to grow spiritually. It'll come with a lot of different sort of lingo, but, but that theme is really, really hot all the time. I want you to notice something from the title here. I didn't say it's five easy steps to growing in God. I said it's five clear steps to growing in God. I hope to show you from the text today five actions that we can actually pattern our life after, but they're not easy steps. It's a lot harder to walk out the things and live out the things in Scripture. In fact, it's impossible. It's the kind of thing that leads us to say, God, we need your help in this. Now, this is really true of parents, but kind of keeping in the theme of of Mother's Day... Um, I'll say it this way, that moms are supremely concerned that their kids grow up well. Is that true, mom? I mean, that is always on the heart of a mom. And there's a right way to do things, and there's a wrong way to do things. And what happens is God gives you kids with opposite ideas about those very things. And so the dance begins, right? That's the, that's the mom and kid dance. Think about some of these. You know, you have bedtime and bath time and, and dinner time, right? And there's a different ideal in the kid's mind than what's going on in the mom's mind. And so this is where the training comes in. This is where the discipline comes in. If you're not a parent today, let me just tell you that all parents have this sort of internal clock in their mind, even from the day their child's born where they are thinking there's coming a day when this little girl, this little boy will no longer be with me, right? And so parents are ever thinking about how are they going to do when they're away from me? How can I set them up? What strategies and tools can I give to my parents, to my kids, so that they don't just do the right thing and the good thing and the healthy thing here in my presence, but how do I equip them so that when they're away from me, they'll do good? This is the internal clock that's kind of nagging at us parents all the time. We're always thinking this way about that. Today, um, we're going to look at, at sort of this, this parent mentality of Paul and his team. Remember from last week that we're coming right off of a passage of Scripture where Paul's saying to these Thessalonians, look, we were mom-like with you, right? We were gentle and affectionate. But we were also dad-like with you. We were cheering you on and we were challenging you, calling you to live a certain way. At the end of this chapter, we'll get to it in a moment, but he comes back to this sort of real parental language where he essentially says, hey, Thessalonians, you guys are our pride and joy. You can almost hear him reaching over and pinching a cheek somewhere, right? Just going, look at you. So proud of you. So this sort of parental language is what we're doing. If you're reading a letter, you don't read a letter, pause, wait a week, and then start reading the letter again, right? So I just want to kind of bring us from last week right into the flow of this week that as he talks to them, he's coming at it from a parent's perspective. What we're going to look at, by the way, is going to include some doctrines. What doctrines are, if you're new to the Christian faith, that sounds like a big, scary, ancient word. Here's what it basically means. These are hard lines. These are things that we say, these are things that we believe. And what we've done as a church is we put these right on our website. We try to just be really upfront about these things. We believe that the Bible gives lots of latitude in all kinds of areas, but it also gives very hard and definitive guardrails that say thus far and no more. This is inbounds. This is out of bounds. And so just like in your home, if you're a parent, you don't set your home up with a thousand hard and fast lines. No one can keep that. That makes for a miserable home, and you can't enforce it, right? But there are some things, because you love your family, because you love your kids, 
that you say this is a hard and fast line. This is allowed. This isn't. Here are just three of the doctrines that just jump out in our passage today. Number one is that the word of God is infallible. That means not only is it not wrong, it's incapable of being wrong. That is a truth that Neighborhood Bible Church has linked arms with and gathered around and believes and stands on. Here's the second one. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. And the third one is that Jesus is coming again, just as he promised. Okay? So we're going to kind of watch for those doctrines as we kind of go through. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you're not there, get there quickly, because I'm about to read. Verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. If you're taking notes, and I hope that you are, write down step one. Step one is this. Go to where God's word is preached. Go to where God's word is preached. You heard this word from us. What makes the parent heart of Paul so glad that he just overflows with gratitude? It's that the word was heard. That's what makes him happy. Now, people have a choice to voluntarily be where God's word is being preached or avoid it like the plague, right? And the fact that you're here, unless someone is paying you on the side or your mom guilted you to church today, you are probably here of your own free will. Many of you I see week after week after week. You are choosing to be in a place where God's word is preached. God's word is leaned on as authoritative. God's word is sung about. God's word is repeated. God's word is meditated on and thought about. And you're challenged on a regular basis to memorize and internalize God's word. You know what that does in the heart of Christian leaders? It makes you overflow with gratitude. It makes you just bubble up and keep going with you. Now, I can't speak as to why Paul was so incredibly thankful, but I can speak as a Christian leader as to why I'm so incredibly grateful that we have a group of people who are choosing to be where God's word is preached. And it's this simple fact. The word of God goes with you into all situations, everywhere, all the time, for all time. It's always with you. So knowing that is really, really reassuring to me. Um, if you begin to minister to people, and I don't mean minister like that's a title, but just you're a brother or sister in Christ, and someone comes to you and says, hey, I just became a Christian. Can I meet with you? Um, I'm really struggling with temptation, and, and I wanted to ask you a few questions. If you sit down with that younger brother or sister in Christ, which I hope you do, that's, this is just the normal family life, then as you sit there and begin to minister with them, you don't have to do that stuff very long to realize very, very quickly this. God, I am in way over my head. The complexity of problems that you guys have, that I hear about, are just are overwhelming. How could I possibly know how to give good counsel to these people that I really, really love? God, I, I, I can barely figure out my own life sometimes. How on earth could I give it to other people? Enter the Word of God. The Word of God is supremely sufficient to speak into the complexities of life. So I'm going to continue to study it and offer it up to my friends. But I also know that, that as people, as a church is willingly putting themselves in the path of hearing God's Word, that brings overwhelming gratitude for those of uh, of us who are shepherd leaders in the church. You know, feeding babies is both a charming and necessary process, right? For a season. After a certain season of time, it's no longer necessary, and it's far from charming. Right? Um, so moms love it, and then after a while, it's like, okay, feed yourself. And if you have teens living in your house, you're working on this one. Here's the added bonus. Get them to clean up after they feed themselves. <laughs> So we have our kids that have no problems feeding themselves anymore, but we're still working every single day on getting them to clean up after feeding themselves. Um, Hebrews 5 puts it this way. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use, catch this, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Um, there's a certain command on pastors to be 
feeding the flock the word of God and to be training others up in righteousness. But do you see that the scriptures also command us as believers to take ownership of our own stuff? That we ought to be training ourselves in righteousness. How? By using God's word constantly. Can I just like lift a huge burden from everyone right now? All Christians struggle with the discipline of Bible intake. Um, reading the Bible. Not just reading it, but then you get a sense where like, I should probably do more than just kind of gloss over this like it's a little novel I'm reading. Studying the Bible. Memorizing the Bible. Meditating, like really chewing on and thinking about the Bible. And then living the Bible out. This is hard stuff. All Christians struggle with this. That's why it's called a spiritual discipline. Because it requires discipline to be doing these things. But what if we were convinced it was worth the effort? Look at this passage from, from Psalm 19. It calls the law of the Lord perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes are called trustworthy and right and radiant. It makes wise, it gives joy, it gives light. In verse 97 of Psalm 119, it says, I love the law of the Lord. Now pause for just a second. When was the last time you heard someone say, I love rules. Give me the rules. I love them. Write them down. I'm just going to look at them and love them. People don't talk this way, right? I mean, we live in a culture like that's the weirdest thing ever. Aren't we trained kind of to go, I hate rules. You can't tell me what to do. Who says? I mean, that's what's born in us. And yet here we see in the scriptures this, this incredibly odd list about the written laws of God. It goes on to say this, that they're enduring and sure and righteous and precious, and they're sweeter than honey. And this last line is the one that really grabs me. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Like many of you, I believe this with all my heart, and I've lived it out to such a degree where I go, man, there's no way I was reading this this morning, and I had no idea that I needed that because it warned me later on that day about the very thing. Gosh, I was reading this, and Rob and I do this all the time with our worship set planning. We're reading something. We go, can you believe that as we're reading this in the Old Testament, it lines up so perfectly with this letter, 1 Thessalonians, that we're trying to put a worship set together for? And as you do that over and over, you just go, man, this constant use. I can't memorize the whole Bible. I don't know what I'm going to need next week to get through. But by constant use, just by, by, by making this a habit and discipline, I, I trust that there's great reward in it. So it's worth the great effort that it requires. Let me show you a screenshot from our website. Um, under About Us, we put, again, just really bluntly on there. Here's what we believe. We want you to know up front what it means to be Neighborhood Bible Church. And here's number one of the doctrinal statement. We believe in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament as being inspired by God and completely inerrant in the original writings and of supreme and final authority in life and faith. When people ask about our church, which they do all the time, I say, oh, we're called Neighborhood Bible Church. Um, are you guys part of a denomination? No, we're not. And I say, you know what? I say, our ruling authority, the referee in our church is the Bible. And we're led by a, a board of elders. That's sort of the structure of, of our church. But I point it to this doctrine of belief in the scriptures. Now, some of you are like the kid in class going, teacher, pick me, pick me, pick me. There's more to this. Because as you read this verse, you see it's not just that they heard it. Um, here's step number two. It's that they received it, right? Um, verse 13, it says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it uh, as what it was, authoritative. So there's a receiving and an accepting as authoritative that is going on. Uh, part of parenting is not being listened to, right? Um, it's training your kids to listen. Most kids don't have a hearing problem. They have a, a listening problem, right? Because they hear certain things really, really well. Other things, I, I don't hear you. Um, one parent said it this way. Parenting is basically just listening to yourself talk because nobody else is, right? And, that's, and that feels so true sometimes. Parent, let me just say, if you struggle with your kids not listening to you, you're, 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 you're not alone, Right? God the Father has kids who don't listen to him, right? He gives the message out, and he's not being listened to. So he identifies with us in our weakness and in our struggle. Um, part of church's God's idea was this, that it's imperative. If you want to be a biblical church, if you want to do church the way God's dreamt it up, is that you have biblical 
preaching. And it's not just that you have biblical preaching. Someone's flying a drone? Wonder, okay. right. Vitamax? I don't know, something's happening. Um, thanks, Jameson. If, if, a, if a whirring blade comes from behind, can you just signal me? I'll keep going, but you just signal me if that happens. Um, all right, so the, can, we, can we bring this back? I'm going to try to bring myself back. I'll see if I can get you back. Um, so biblical preaching is a really, really important part of doing church God's way. But catch this. In our series, we mentioned this, that biblical preaching is equally important. Don't you hear all the time? Like, we have really good biblical preaching in our church. Oh, our teacher, we, we preach the Bible. We have good biblical preaching. I guarantee you it's a dead or dying church if there's not good biblical listening going on, right? If you're not receiving the word as authoritative, if you're not accepting it and living it out, then it doesn't matter how accurate or good the biblical preaching is. You know why? Because all communication is two-way. Amen? All communication is two-way. Amen? Okay, see, the, if, if it was silent, then I could just go on and on and on, and it wouldn't matter one bit. All communication has things going back and forth both ways. So look up at verse 9. It says, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. This is the parents doing their job. We're teaching you the way to be saved. And now here it is a few verses later. We have biblical listening going on. You received the word of God. You accepted it as authoritative. And you know what happens when that, when that goes on? There's transformation that goes on. It's so powerful to see that the Word of God has its effect in you. Let me assure you, church, some of you, this is the second service. We have three services every single Sunday here at this church. It's possible to sit in second service and have no idea what's going on in first service, no idea what's going on in third service. We have biblical preaching and biblical listening going on at this place. And I'm absolutely assured of it because I can see transformation going on. Let me give you a few quick examples. Two categories. One is because people are convinced of other people's need for a savior, they are going outside of their normal realm of comfort to invite people, not just to church, not just to Bible study, but into a relationship with Jesus Christ at great personal risk to themselves, at great personal discomfort, but they see the need and out of love, they are reaching out to people in that way. Out of the needs of orphans, both here in our city and around the world, people are taking their lives and they're flipping them upside down because they say it's not enough just to like the statement on Facebook that says every family deserves or every child deserves a family. We need to do something about it. We're convinced God has a heart for this, so we're going to do something about it. Celebrate with me, church, right now, because we just had four of our families from NBC just complete the nine weeks of training that's required by Santa Clara County, so they are now approved to be foster parents. Is that amazing or what? That's awesome. That is in direct response because God says care for the orphans because we believe that adoption is the hope of the world, not physical adoption, but our spiritual adoption. And so people are going, man, we need to live that out. We can live that out in a very physical, tangible way. And so not only are people stepping forward to say, we're going to, we're going to do foster care. How crazy is that? We have other families who are coming around and saying, you're going to need a massive amount of support. Man, we're going to link arms with you. And until God moves us away, we're here for you in a deep, ongoing level. So we have these four families that are going through this. We have many, many other support families, 15 other support families that are coming around these families to say, man, let us help shoulder the burden that this is going to create in your family. In coming back from China and kind of getting back up to speed, I just told all of our team, I said, hey, I want to meet with you all one-on-one. I just want to hear what's God been doing in our church? What are the problems that you're having and facing? And how can I help? How can I help support you as you minister? Like, what are the roadblocks I can help remove? What are the, you know, what are the things you're trying to work on? And I met with Angel this week, and Angel told me a couple of stories from third service I want to pass on to you. One is he said this, day, he said, and he had no idea I was preaching on this. In fact, when he got done with this, I'm like, let me tell you what, you know, what passage I'm preaching on this, this week. He said, Dave, there's a young guy in our, in our midst who a little while ago came, and he was a blasphemer of God. He said openly stated, I hate God. I want nothing to do with him. And he said, just last week, he said, this person is coming full circle. He's been coming, sitting, hearing the preaching of God's word. He's been participating in the church life. And he's now seeking 
the blessing of God in his life. And that's transformation. He mentioned another marriage that came, and they were just hanging by a thread. And he said he went away from there just so burdened, weeping for them. And they've been coming, and they've brought their life under the authority of the Scriptures. They've said, we're going to stop doing marriage the way we, we do it, because we stink at it, evidently. And he said their, their marriage is now on solid, firm footing, and it's visibly, it's just turning around right before his very eyes. This is the Word of God being received as what it is. Not therapy from men, not cute little ideas that I can pass on to you, but the authoritative Word of God, and it's having its effect. Here's the pattern. The message comes from God. It goes through us, meaning the apostles who wrote it down and preachers who herald it, and then it's transforming you. Friends, there's huge, grave warning for those who simply hear and hear and hear and hear God's word and then maybe dissect it and study it and parse it and stuff, but never do anything with it. They don't receive it. They don't accept it. What happens is you get hard to it, right? So all of a sudden, your mind and your heart, oh, I've heard this one before. In fact, I led a Bible study on it. I'm good. And no longer are you pliable, as we just sang, no longer are you opening your life to the words of God to shape you and confront you and encourage you in the right things. There is something mystical that happens, and I don't understand it all by a long shot. But when a believer opens his life to the word of God and receives it and takes it on faith, and begins to act on what he or she is learning, it's an ongoing force in that person's life that as a counselor, when someone comes and asks me for counsel, and they say that they are engaged in, I can just tell, they are receiving God's word and putting it into practice, and they're learning by constant use to discern themselves. I go, man, we are, we are way ahead of the game because you're doing that. I don't know God's will for your life in total, but I know at least part of God's will for your life. You ready for it? These are from the, mouth, from the mouth of Jesus. It's to receive the words of Jesus Christ. Accept them. Listen to this from John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? Free. John chapter 15, verse 7. If, that means there's an if then. Not everyone does this. If you abide in me, catch this, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. James, the brother of John, remember the little letter that he wrote? He had utter confidence in receiving the word. Listen to this from James 1.21. Receive with meekness the implanted word. Do you see where he got the implanted word concept? Jesus just said, if, if, if my words abide in you and, and you abide in my word, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Do you see why our number one doctrinal statement has to do with the scriptures that we're putting right out there? This is, this is the proper place of scripture at this church. Receive with meekness means this when you're sitting in a sermon, when you're in a Bible study, when you're reading a Christian book, when you're reading the scriptures, you're not sitting there judging it and looking for loopholes and trying to figure out all the ways that they, oh, they didn't say that quite right. Instead, it's a humility that says, God, I need to come under the authority. Would you wash my mind from all the crud that I've let in this week of thinking weird thoughts about life? Can you show me how to apply scripture to this situation with my boss at work? God, I'm struggling to raise my kids in the way that you want me to. Can, can, you, can you help me discern, uh, not in the black and whites that you've spoken about, but all the grays that seem to be there. Can you help me discern how to do right by my kids and serve them well? I'm choosing a school, God, and I, I want to honor you with my life. I'd be willing to do whatever you tell me to do, but, but I, need, I need your wisdom in deciding these things. Being implanted with and remaining faithful to the word of God has both gains and losses. Here are some of the gains that we just read about. Adoption, freedom, fruit-bearing, wisdom, and warning. Those are the things you gain when you, when you abide in God's word. Here's some of the things you lose. Here's some of the losses that come with abiding in the word of God. You ready for it? Comfort. 
relationships, being in control, to name just three. Gains and losses. This is what now and later is all about, right? It's weighing the payoff. Is this worth entering into and trusting or not? Revelation 6.9 paints this picture of the end of times. It says, when we opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Man, what do gains and losses look like from that end of eternity? Remember we were sort of fearful that we were going to lose our life over the Bible? How much nonsense is there in that on this side of things? And we were on the right side. It was so worth it. All right, step three is all about actions, about living out steps one and two. You say, well, how does join a church fit into this? Let me show you verse 14. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Here's the pattern that God has laid out for us as Christians. You're born again. And just like God doesn't have ever have a plan of a baby being born in a field and left in a field alone, but God takes a baby and he places them in a family. So a Christian is born again and placed in a family. That family is called the church. Notice I said join a church, don't attend worship services. Don't frequent Bible studies when it's convenient. Get with God's people. So much learning goes on in family just by imitating. You kind of learn from other people in your family. I shared when I first got home from China that our two little ones who who were not used to being in family life uh, utterly transformed um, uh, um, mealtimes when they saw the other children not chucking food um, and putting food in their hair. Like, they stopped doing that, and we didn't tell them, now, stop doing that. They just, they were watching. They were watching what goes on at a family dinner table. They were imitating. So, so Paul's commending them. He's championing them, saying, man, you became imitators. Now, what specifically does the scriptures call out? How did they specifically imitate the churches in Judea? Suffering. You suffer. You want to know that there's evidence that they took God at his word? They're suffering for it. There's the proof. There's the evidence that they didn't just say, oh, we believe that. They're living it out. Here's what's kind of fascinating. Think about the person writing this. Paul is intimately acquainted with the suffering of Christians in Judea. You know why? He was the punisher. He was the one perpetrating punishment on the Christians. Remember that? That was his old life. That was the old Saul. He got legal documents to come and punish Christians. And here he is saying, I was wrong. Last week I called the sermon, Living the Living Word. He says this, we didn't just bring you the message of the living word. We lived the word in your midst. You know why they did that? They were modeling the Christian life. Part of how you grow up in God is you get with God's family and you start to to learn from one another. I don't care what discipline you're studying, every single thing you ever study has two kinds of teaching and two kinds of learning going on. There's the explicit teaching, and then there's the implicit teaching. The explicit teaching this morning is I'm teaching you five clear actions that we can pattern our life after to grow up in God, right? I'm saying that out loud. I'm being really clear about that. What's the implied teaching going on? The implied teaching would be this. As I say, receive the word of God, you might be thinking, hmm, I wonder how our pastor receives the word of God. Does he accept the word of God as authoritative, or does he just hear it, dissect it, and give messages? If the sermon were explicitly, love your spouse, you would watch me like a hawk. How does the pastor love his spouse? The implied teaching is all that I do and not say. It's all the unspoken, informal learning that's going on just by how we watch one another. Now, this is completely unscientific, but I ran a little survey in my mind, um, and here's what I came up with. I think that the unspoken and informal lessons are far more powerful than the spoken and formal lessons. If I were to preach a six-week sermon on suffering, 
you would remember some amount of that. But if next Sunday I stand up here and I say, church, um, I've been diagnosed with cancer. It's in stage four, and it's going to be an interesting six weeks. And you were to watch that, and by God's grace, I were to promote, I were to put forth a positive lesson of how to suffer well, hoping in Christ, which would you remember in 20 years? I guarantee you, you wouldn't remember my sermon at all. You would remember how I live my life. For good or for bad, you would remember the unspoken informal teaching, the implicit teaching going on. This is the power of imitation. Isn't this why the Word became flesh? I mean, it's so good of God that He wrote down the important things, right? Because we're forgetful. That's part of why the law is written. It's really important, so I'm going to write this down. But it's over-gracious of God to send Jesus to put a living sermon in front of us. So all of a sudden, when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, we go, okay, um, how's that done? Then we watch Jesus with the woman at the well, an outcast. Then we watch Jesus with his opposition. How, how do you speak the truth in love and yet still be truthful? Well, Jesus showed us that. How are you both the lion and the lamb? Well, Jesus showed you that, showed us that. And he did it by living it out for us. And so these are the lessons. These are the things that we pick up. This is why we join a church. Step number three. If you pattern your life after Christ, here's what's going to happen. You know what the word repent means, right? Repent means to turn around. I, Paul, am persecuting the Christians. I realize I'm on the wrong team. So repent means to turn around. You know what turn around does? It puts you on a collision course, does it not, with the rest of the world coming against you. Isn't that right? I mean, if you are walking in exactly the opposite direction of everyone at the mall, you ought to be thinking, this is the Christian life. Pardon me. Excuse me. Right? You're kind of bumping into people. Look at verse 14. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God, and oppose all mankind. That's quite a list. By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Step number four is this. Walk in confidence, not fear. These imitators, these Thessalonians proved their acceptance of the word by suffering. They trusted instead of feared. You know, we tend to grow in hard times. When a storm comes in your life, there's no guarantee that you'll grow. You may just fall flat on your face and miss the lesson and have to go through something again. But think about when there's been spikes of growth in your life. Wasn't there some challenge in front of you? Wasn't there some temptation? Wasn't there some giant pressing question? Wasn't there difficulty and opposition? God, catch this, God invites us into the storm. God allows trials and testing because he loves us. It grows us up. So what specifically brought the suffering? What specifically brought all this opposition in this context? It was these two words. Ready? Jesus, Messiah. Jesus, Messiah. Our kind of mm, Gentile, North American, English vernacular for this would be this. Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only Savior. If you take the Hebrew word for Messiah, it's transliterated for us. Messiah, which means holy one. I mean, sorry, anointed one. If you take the word Christ, Christ is sort of the verb form of that, meaning anointed one. So when, when you see Jesus Messiah, and you hear us say more often in English, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, right? It's a title. Jesus the Christ. By saying Jesus Messiah, to a Jew right now today, you are saying a world of things to that person. All the prophecy of the Old Testament pointed ahead to the Messiah, the one who would save, the one who was from God. And when you say that Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, he's that Messiah, I mean, you are, you are putting yourself quite distinctly on this team of, I oppose that to the death, 
or I'm, a, I'm right on board with that. And it's a very divisive statement. And it's no different for us. Go tomorrow and talk to your workmates, roommates, teammates, classmates that you have committed to patterning your life after Jesus, I don't think you'd have many problems. I mean, people are like, oh, cool. I pattern my life after Martin Luther King. I think both those people are kind of cool. Good. But you go tomorrow and you tell those same people, hey, Jesus is the only way to be right with God. Wouldn't that cause some problems at your office? Wouldn't you be labeled by some things? You might be reported to HR and lose your job over that. I mean, that's really serious stuff. That really bends people out of shape. With one sweep of the, of the, of the hand, you're, you're saying that, that your religion is better than all religions, which honestly kind of misses the whole point of what's happening there. But try that tomorrow. Try those two things. Maybe on Monday, say the one, and then on Tuesday, say, you know what, I'm not just patterning my life after. I've got more to say about that. And just kind of, kind of see what goes on. What made the early church so intolerable that they must be stopped even by death is that they were intolerant on this point. They didn't say there were other ways to be saved. When Paul went to Mars Hill and he observed all these different altars, there was tons of open religion going on. He tried to affirm what he saw. He said, I see that you're religious in many ways, but let me tell you about the unknown God. Let me tell you about the God who, who made everything. And he began to preach to them the way to be saved. Number three in our doctrinal statement says this, that we believe that Jesus Christ was begotten of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and is true God and true man. And it's not just that we think he's unique and divine in his birth, but also in his death and resurrection. Article five says this, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures as a representative and substitutionary sacrifice, and that all who believe in him are justified on the grounds of his shed blood. Those are some of the doctrines of this church, the things we say we stand on these truths. I want you to flip in your Bibles over to Acts chapter 22 for a moment. Paul says some things that would be called anti-Semitic today. Does he just hate the Jews? Saying all these things? No, he's just being blunt. He's just speaking truthfully. He also called himself a blasphemer and a, per a persecutor of the church. And then he says, I was wrong. I did the wrong thing. If you read Romans 9, it's so powerful because Paul is saying this about his countrymen. Far from being anti-Jew, he so longs for them to be saved, to get this, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he goes as far as to say this. If I could somehow even give up my own salvation so that my countrymen would get this and be saved, I would do it. Go read Romans 9. He was not anti-Semitic. He loved enough to tell the truth. Don't we have family and friends that, that we say hurtful things to and we're accused of being uncompassionate and ungrateful and unloving and very narrow-minded? Paul loved his countrymen. And he said, you... Countrymen, you kill the prophets. You kill Jesus. You do what you do. God sends a messenger to you, and you kill him. It's pretty childlike to kill the messenger, right? How many of you like the warning light on your car? Most of us don't, right? That's an annoying thing. I want to go find the wire and cut it. I want duct tape to go over that so I just have to see it. Isn't that childish? It's like a three-year-old playing hide-and-go-seek, right? It changes your perception, La, 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 we don't have to hear the messenger anymore because he's dead, right? It doesn't change reality. Acts 22, starting in verse 20. This is Paul writing. To the Jews, to kind of get into their head, nothing was worse than a Gentile dog getting in on God. They found that intolerable. He's writing this. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I, Paul, myself, was standing by approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. I was there. And he, Jesus, said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now look at verse 22. This is really powerful to get into their head. Up to this point, up to this word, they listened to him. 
Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Why were they suddenly worked up? Because he was going to take God's grace to the Gentiles. The sin of the Jewish people is a sin we all have to guard against. Were the, were the Jewish people the chosen people of God? Yes or no? Absolutely. But what happened was it never dawned on them they were chosen to serve. They were chosen to share. They were chosen to be a blessing to the nations, even though this is what God told Abram way back when. They thought being the chosen people of God meant a life of privilege, meant a life of being set apart, meant a life of rule, all of which has tinges of truth to it. And when Paul comes along and says, no, 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 this thing's for the whole world, for Gentiles, and they, that immediately said, enough of that. We, we need to kill this person. It's possible for people to be sincerely wrong and need to be lovingly and forcefully confronted. Not only that, they actively worked against other people sharing God's message. This is true in our day, too, by the way. People aren't just, people preach, let's just live and let live. But you start preaching Jesus the only way, you will be opposed. I can guarantee it. They will actively work against you. So how does God feel about all of this? Look at, look at what it says. Wrath has come. Back to our first Thessalonians passage. Wrath has come. This wrath, this justified anger aimed at wickedness isn't just for those Jewish people who killed Jesus. It's not just for those Islamists who are murdering people in the name of their faith. Hell is a real place for psychopaths, catch this, and for nominal, run-of-the-mill moralists who are spurning the prophets in Jesus Christ and forming their own pathway to God. And the message of the gospel that Jesus saves is for all of them. It's for all of us. This is precisely why Jesus died on a cross, to absorb the wrath rightfully assigned to me. Let me give you a really fun, big theological concept, okay? Here it is. Penal substitutionary atonement. There you go. You can write it down and impress people with that. This had tinges of it in our doctrinal statement that I just read. Let me break this down very simply and quickly. Penal means my guilt required a penalty. Uh, substitutionary means that Jesus took my place. Not only absorbing my wrath, but also granting the blessing. Right? The Father sees us with Jesus' resume, perfectly holy. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming the curse for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Isn't this what Paul was just preaching? Isn't this just what people were like, we've got to kill this guy for that message. So that we might receive the promise, spirit, through faith. And finally, the word atonement just means reconciled to God. That is, the effects of sin which keep us from God have been removed. Why? Because the penalty has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. Jot down 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John Piper said it this way, if God weren't just, there'd be no reason for Jesus to die. If God weren't loving, there would be no willingness to send Jesus. Romans 8. Turn there really quickly. I want to read extensively this little passage because you're going to see it in a different light with these truths in front of your face. When I say the next step is to walk in confidence and not in fear, it's not wishful thinking. It's the logical outflow of the reality God's put in place. Romans chapter 8 Verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Do you see that? It is God who justifies. Who is there left to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation 
or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. And then in verse 37, no, in all these things we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the pattern that we are to walk in. Finally, step five, learn from leaders, lean on God. Verse 17, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul's saying, look, I was torn away. He's reassuring them. I didn't abandon you. Don't listen to the liars who said I, I taught you some things and took off. I didn't abandon you. I was torn away. He was doing everything he could to get back to them. You hear the aching and the affection and the urgency in his language. The question would be, how, how would they do with the grown-ups gone? How would the kids fare? Now, for any of those of you in the, in the room who are 35 years and older, this whole storyline sounds really familiar, right? I mean, this is the storyline of this. Go watch this again. Kids, it's a movie called Home Alone. You'll find First Thessalonians right in this movie. Hard and scary for kids to be left alone. They don't know why the grown-ups went away. There's, uh, there's kind of boogeymen and sounds. and They don't know what's going on. How would the kids fare with enemies coming at them, meaning harm for them? The leaders from this church were out of sight, but they weren't out of mind. You know why? Because the lesson stuck. Because the Word of God goes with you wherever you go. So even if you forcibly remove the leaders, the leaders are confident, saying, you know what? They're going to lean on God. God, keep them in the Word. Keep them in the truth. He says, we wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. This, by the way, is Satan's work. It's to put roadblocks in the lives of people to getting to God. That's it, plain and simple. As the hater of life, he wants to keep anyone and everyone from God. Two quick truths about this. Number one is this, that Satan can only oppose as God has given him leash to oppose. That is, God is sovereign. So he's not given free reign to just do whatever he wants to you. This is why we can say in confidence, we're more than conquerors. Who's... Who's got this thing? It's God. He's sovereign. So that's number one. Secondly is this. Life is not a cakewalk. You will be opposed. God will put dreams, desires in your heart. And then as you start to march toward those and act on faith and believe in that, you will be opposed. Don't be shocked at that. In fact, if you're never opposed, it could mean that you're just in this safe bubble and you're not acting on anything. But when God says, take a step, and you're like, I don't even know Greek, but that looks like I should just do this. God, you've got me. I'm here. Wow. And God says, no, go, go some more. Go this way. Isn't this where the learning goes on, right? And all of a sudden, as you start to walk in this, you will experience roadblocks. The role of Satan is to throw up hindrances. The, th the role of us is to trust and to overcome them, to press on. God, are you still in this? Is this, is this from you blocking me, or is it, am I supposed to press on? And you keep on walking that path. Parent Paul was thrilled that his kids not only survived, but they thrived, even in his absence. This is what thrills a parent's heart, right? is you get a report back that they were doing what, what they would do around you when they weren't around you. And that's thrilling to a parent because it's hard evidence that they're growing up, that the lessons you're seeking to instill are taking root and they're applying them. Paul looks forward to that real day when Jesus Christ is coming back. By the way, that's doctrinal point number seven on our doctrinal statement. He looks forward to a real day when Jesus comes back as he promises and he's going to be there, and he's going to have his pride and joy around him. His greatest accomplishment here was that, was that there were others that received the word of God and are there faithful to the end. Let me invite the band to come on up right now. I conclude with this. I really think you ought to be suspicious anytime someone says, here's five easy steps to a great life. 
Here's five easy things to a great walk with God. I'm suspicious of those things, and I rarely use this kind of language. I tried to give you the little caveat that these aren't easy steps, but we can clearly see from Scripture that they're there. One of the riches of Scripture is if you take the time to just mine it and say, God, why is this in Scripture? Why would you leave this for us? Is you can see these five actions. Do you see those five actions? Those are things we can cooperate with. We can, we can walk in that way. God, you're showing us how to live. There's a free little book that I want to just extend to you. It's on the back table. If you see these traits in your life, here's my, here's my instruction to you. Keep at it. Just keep on going. Keep walking as you're already doing. If these are not present in your life, I would say this. Question yourself. Evaluate. Maybe you've called yourself a Christian for a long time, but you don't receive the word with meekness. According to James, your soul may not be saved. You've got to look at that. If you're brand new to this, this is a little booklet called Now That You're a Christian, A Guide to Your Faith in Plain Language. Can you see how thin that is? Even for you non-readers, this is doable. Okay? And it's free. Um, we want to put this in your hands um, and if you know someone that might benefit from this, just grab a copy and say, hey, I just wanted to extend this to you. Um, this is a great thing for an older Christian to walk through with a, with a brand new Christian. Let me just give you the shocking titles of this. The first part is bro- it's broken into three parts. What God has done for you. God has saved you forever. Your new life in Christ, you have an inside source. What God wants you to do. Read the Bible, learn to pray, go to church. Is this revolutionary stuff? No. This has been going on for a long time, friends. This is us becoming imitators of those who've gone before us. Finally, it says having God's heart, loving one another, becoming a disciple, sharing your faith. If that's helpful, pick it up. We're about to sing a song called Great Reward. And because I long to have you not only live well but die well, I'm constantly wanting to steer your sort of the, the eyes of your soul up to, to a future date beyond next week's deadline, beyond the bill that you're going to go home to after work or after church, beyond what's on your plate this coming week in your schedule. This song is, um, is really powerful, and there's a bridge to it that I want to just kind of invite us as a church to, to belt out as sort of a personal declaration of trust. We started with singing about Christ's solid rock, and you're going to hear that same theme in our ending this morning and here's how you'll know it's the bridge it says this I know this is dangerous daring just to pray this and when it goes into that bridge man church let's let's join hearts and sing our declaration of trust to God